you can take small risks, right? You start by, you know, you sort of wake up in the morning, you say, okay, today I'm going to go out of my way to offer an idea, or I'm going to be willing to ask a question when there's something I don't quite understand and just do it, sort of commit to yourself to do it and see what happens. You know, 99 times out of a hundred, it's not going to end badly, right? It's going to end well. Plug into the minds of the world's cutting edge innovators, visionaries, and thought leaders, rewriting the rules of high performance at work. It's your time to make an impact. I am your host, Jason Campbell, and this is Superhumans at Work, a Mind Valley podcast. Welcome to Superhumans at Work by Mind Valley. I'm your host, Jason Mark Campbell, and before we get started, tell me if you could change anything in your life, what would it be? Would it be your body, your career, your relationships? Thankfully, you don't have to choose. As a Mind Valley member, you'll get instant access to the wisdom of world-class personal growth teachers and programs that can evolve you in every way for just $2 a day. Are you ready to make a change? Start transforming your life today at mindvalley.com forward slash superhuman. Hi, everybody. This is Jason Mark Campbell. Welcome back to Superhumans at Work. I'm so excited today to have this amazing teacher from the Navaris Leadership and Management Division at Harvard Business School. Amy C. Edmonston has been an established author with over seven books under her belt, has been recognized by the biannual Thinker 50 Global Ranking of Management Thinkers since 2011, ranking, I believe, third in 2019. She has done extensive work on the field of psychological safety. It's a topic we covered a long time ago on Superhumans at Work, but I really want to make sure that we go deeper into it and talk about its relevancy, especially with a lot of people transitioning to remote work. Her most recent book, The Fearless Organization, Creating Psychological Safety in the Workplace for Learning, Innovation, and Growth is a practical guide for the organizations to get serious about modern economy and wants to apply these principles. They are highly functional, highly relevant, and you're definitely not going to want to to miss a minute of this episode. Amy, welcome to the show. Jason, thanks for having me. I'm really excited about this topic because I think when we get into working with other people and the bigger the organization, the more there's different personalities, lots of different assumptions. And a lot of us like to complain about <laughs> leadership, right? And so right. obviously there's some responsibility that can happen for the leadership side, but I know there's definitely some responsibilities we have to take on an individual. So I would love to start with, if we're talking about building a fearless organization, can you tell me what a fearful organization would look like and how dysfunctional does that become? Well, there are gradations of dysfunctional, of course. So let me say that a fearful organization is actually most of them. It's not the exception, right? It's essentially the rule. And that's because of human nature and organizational nature. I mean, maybe the best way to explain this is none of us wake up in the morning and jump out of bed because we can't wait to get to work today to look ignorant, incompetent, intrusive, or negative, right? Of course not. We want to look smart, capable, helpful, positive. We care what people think of us. And so what that means in practical terms is, you know, because we care what people think of us, and especially, of course, what the boss thinks, we are likely to hold back. Right? If I don't want to look incompetent, don't admit any mistakes. If I don't want to uh, look 
ignorant, don't ask any questions. Well, how do you perform great work and how do you work on a team if you're not admitting mistakes or asking for help or speaking up or offering ideas? You can't, right? But routinely, people in the workplace are holding back. They're playing it safe. That means there's, a, I'm not saying fearful in the sense of some dramatic terror, I'm saying fearful in the sense of, on average, I think I'll hold back rather than dive in, you know, rather than bring my full authentic voice to work, I'll hold back. So fearful organizations are everywhere. Fearless organizations are rare. Mm. Yeah, I definitely would see that the politics is kind of the element that we're talking about here, right? Because we all have to kind of watch our back. Everybody has their own goals and incentives, but what would be the natural kind of like reason why people fall into this fearful state? Is it just because we're all people that are confused? We're not communicating right? Like what, what's happening? Well, why do we default to this? Yeah, it's not because we're bad people. Self-protection is natural. It's even healthy. We don't want you putting yourself in harm's way. The problem is that many of the harms are imagined, not real. And so we have, I'll make a distinction between irrational fear and rational fear. It is utterly rational to be afraid of that virus, right? It's utterly rational to be worried about a big competitor, an organization, meaning a competitor in the marketplace who might be a better, more agile company in your space than, than you are, right? Those are rational fear because they could harm you and you have the ability to do something about it. Irrational fears are those ones that in fact, aren't really dangerous, but we don't challenge them. We don't sort of stop and challenge and choose the healthiest possible response. We just kind of err on the side of caution where that caution can paradoxically backfire, right? It can lead us to not be innovative, you know, to not be asking for the help we need to do a great job, to not be offering a crazy idea because it might not be good enough. And so that irrational fear, you know, ironically makes us do things that don't help us, don't help our teams, and ultimately don't help our organizations. Well, I've definitely worked for two types of organizations myself. I'd like to think that within Mind Valley, I definitely had a lot of confidence within being able to express some of the ideas that I have, but I've also worked for the government uh, when I was doing internships and as an intern, and I had, you know, at the time where I have a ton of ideas, I have this young energy and I want to do it, but there was such a structure and it would get shut down immediately. And then I just didn't want to bring my ideas forward anymore because I didn't even think it would be heard. And is this what we're talking about here? And is this where we're seeing this innovation die? Yeah, I think that's well put. And when I hear you describe your experience as an intern, I see two aspects to it. One is you kind of picked up the message from the culture that it's not okay to speak up with something new and possibly innovative or disruptive. The other aspect is probably inadequate motivation to do so, right? You're only going to be there for a little while. You don't really imagine that you can make much of a difference anyway. So there's a kind of why bother aspect to it, which is you know, I think the why bother and the I'm afraid can go hand in hand and often do go hand in hand. Um, and so creating an organization where that's not the norm requires a little bit of effort in attacking both, right? And basically providing blanket permission to people to err on the side of voice and also in helping people feel motivated enough to want to do that. 
I would see that there's a certain responsibility as well from the leadership, right? Because I mean, if there is that culture that is present, if there is this assumption that, oh yeah, anytime somebody speaks up in a meeting or makes the leader look like they don't know what they're doing, you're not going to get that promotion. You're not going to get featured. Right. You're going to be boxed out. So what are the things that causes this kind of culture to kind of exist naturally? And how do we fight against that? Well, two big questions. One it is, I would argue, this culture happens naturally because of vestigial mental models, right? And I say that pointy-headed way on purpose. Our mental models about management, right, about what good management is, in subtle ways, not explicitly, stem from the industrial era. They stem from an era where the tasks were prescribed, clear-cut, objective, could be immediately assessed as to how well you did it by a manager, you know, Henry Ford's world, right? And in that world, the natural tendencies we're talking about made a lot of sense, right? There wasn't a lot of room for discretion and the boss knew best and you were meant to follow instructions or else. Not saying you'd want to work there, but I'm saying that was a mental model that worked. Today, today it doesn't work anymore because nearly all of the work is knowledge work. It is the kind of work for which ingenuity and discretion and effort all matter. And so what we need to do is almost as managers, people need to pull talent forward rather than push answers out, right? That's why it is that way. So the natural tendency is just because we've come from a legacy and an education around that legacy, whereas that, hey, we need to just make sure people don't just follow the orders, don't create complexity. We have upper management setting the plan, we just need executors. But now as we transition to knowledge, we're looking for these innovation. We need disruption. We need these things to come up or else we're not going to survive or the company's right, not going to thrive. Right. I mean, the average lifespan of a company has gone dramatically down in the last 20, 30 years. So the sort of Fortune 10 or Fortune 100 list was a reasonably stable list for many decades of the 20th century. But then toward the end of the 20th century, it started being remarkably unstable to the point where the largest 25 companies today didn't exist 20 years ago. That's a bit of a stretch, but it's close to that. So what that tells us, it's not that, okay, Amy, this is the way the world is. It's nice to have this academic idea that you could have more agile learning organizations, but hey, things work. Well, no, things don't work. If companies routinely die, that means they're not being as managed in a way that's optimal for the nature of the work today, right? And legacy, you use the word legacy, and it's a really good word because one aspect of a legacy is that it just becomes taken for granted. I mean, I think when we consciously think about these things, it becomes quite clear that, oh, well, that doesn't make sense, that doesn't work. But because we don't consciously think about it often enough, we just kind of go through the motions And we do these behaviors that feel quite natural, but are anything but optimal. Now, we've talked about already that the majority of the operations are done from a fear base. Your book is definitely guiding people on how to get to that fearless state. Can you give us a taste of what does it look like? Do we have examples of these fearless organizations and what happens differently and that makes it so effective? Well, first of all, I think I have to come clean uh, and say that the fearless organization is an aspiration, right? It's not that, you know, you can look around the landscape of companies and say, oh, fearless, fearful. And the 
primary reason why it's an aspiration rather than a reality is variance. Within any company, almost any company that you can name, except maybe a startup that's very small and lively, but within almost any company of any size, you will have variance in psychological safety. You will have some teams that have it and others that don't, some in between. So why does that matter? Because this phenomenon that we're talking about, this, this phenomenon of speaking up openly is very much a local phenomenon, right? It, it's not something that an organization's employees will do en masse, right? It's something that you and I will do in our team. We get the sense that in our team, this is absolutely a place where I can err on the side of speaking up, you know, where I can say, I got a crazy idea here. It might not go anywhere, but hey, maybe some of you can build on it. In this team, that becomes natural. It's exciting. Boy, I love my team. And there we are. But meanwhile, across the hall over there, there's a team where people are just holding back, right? They're anxious. They believe that they could make a false step at any moment. And so the goal of creating a fearless organization is really more often a a goal of bringing up the laggards rather than sort of fully starting from scratch. And how you do that at an organizational level is, and this might sound paradoxical, but first focus on performance, right? So don't focus on, Hey, let's be a fearless organization. I mean, I'm a fan of that, but I think that doesn't seem like a worthy goal to some executives. The worthy goal is how do we kick ass in this competitive marketplace? Right. And the answer is, well, you're going to need a culture where people can routinely bring their talents forward, right? How are you going to do that? Well, you're going to have to have teams throughout the organization, whether they're in your production operations, your sales operations, your innovation operations, wherever they are, those teams are going to have to be fearless, learning-oriented teams. Before we continue, I just want to tell you a little bit about Mindvalley membership. For all of you personal development junkies like me out there, growing in one area of your life just isn't enough. That's why we made Mindvalley membership to bring you the best personal growth programs on the planet so you can evolve every day in every way. Whether you want to get crazy fit, build a business, or manifest more money in your life, there's a quest for that. And now you can access every single one for just $2 a day. So if you're striving to become the best self and live the life you deserve, try out Mindvalley membership at mindvalley.com forward slash superhuman. And so that's a key aspect because I would think whenever you bring these ideas of improving like saying we need to have the employees' voices heard more. We need to apply things like, and I'm thinking of other modalities here. It's like nonviolent communication. It seems like it can't be prioritized around all the other pressures that's happening that leadership right. needs to, to work on. But the ultimate one that everybody can align to is, of course, performance. And so have you been able to see these departments and, and have like measurable differences in performance? And how do you quantify it typically? You know, I've done some research, some studies, some of my, probably almost half of my empirical studies have been done in healthcare environments. And there are hundreds of other studies that have been done by other researchers, right? So there's a pretty robust body of evidence psychological safety is associated with performance, but it's not because psychological safety, kind of what we were talking about before, motivates you to do a good job. It's because it unleashes you. 
So there has to also be some motivation, whether that's because you really care about the purpose of the company or the purpose of the team, or whether because you're going to be rewarded in some way, wherever that motivation comes from, or maybe it's just that intrinsic desire to do good work. I'll be agnostic about where that motivation is coming from at the moment. And then my question becomes, are the brakes on or can we take the brakes off? And when we take the brakes off, we're getting more of you, right? More of your brain power, more of your heart, more of your soul, and you're more engaged. So when I say start with performance, what I really mean is start with the value we're trying to create around here. And then very importantly, explain, and this can be done from a team leader, this can be the senior executives, this can be anyone on a team. Just make sure we're all on the same page about the fact that achieving that goal is going to require us to offer our thoughts, right? That's just sort of the way it is. It's obvious, but when it's not explicitly articulated, it doesn't happen. People hold back. So one is kind of set the stage by saying, this is what we're all about. This is why it matters. We live in a volatile, uncertain, complex, ambiguous world. Anything can happen. Anyone's voice can be mission critical. Okay, great. You know, given that, we're going to have to err on the side of hearing from you. Not enough, though. I think people also need to practice the art of inquiry, which really just means be curious, ask good questions day in and day out. If you're in a dynamic, fast-changing world, it is a given that you don't know everything. And if it's a given that you don't know everything, not a bad idea to be asking lots of questions, right? So, you know, so this start, it's almost a two halves of the same coin, which is one is that willingness to speak up, but the other is when people pull your voice from you by asking you a question, which by the way, is what you're doing right now. You know, you're asking me questions and then I'm answering. And I promise you, it would feel very awkward to sit here silently after you asked me a question, right? We all know that, right? That would be a weird human thing to do. So we don't do it. So if you want people to speak up at work, ask them questions. I think that's a really important one. And and when you say that, my first assumption is like, this is a great initiative to nurture that psychological safety as a leader of a team. If I'm an individual within a team, would you also encourage the same prescription here? Where is that? Do I start asking that question to leadership? Yeah. I mean, you can ask the question to leadership. If you wish, you can ask the question to each other. And by the way, I like to make a distinction between leader, which is a formal role, usually, whether of the team or the company or what have you, and leadership, which is an activity. Leadership is an activity that is designed to exert a positive influence on others. And so therefore, anyone can exercise leadership. And so a member of a team, you know, let's say a member of your team sees you looking pensive. They can say, Jason, what's on your mind? Right? And then I think at that point, if there's nothing on your mind, you might come clean and say so. But the chances are pretty good there's something on your mind. And let's hope it's relevant to the work at hand. But here we go but you will share it, right? Because when someone asks a question, they're issuing an invitation. And it is awkward, as I said before, to not at least be somewhat responsive to that invitation. And it's, a, it's also, if you think about it, an act of respect. You know, when someone asks you a question, they are saying, I respect you enough to be interested in what you're thinking. I wanted to switch it and talk about what are the examples or the methods that I can navigate for those who find themselves maybe having a 
would it be called a toxic manager or a place where you want to be more active? Like we've, we know that there's performance correlations to having higher psychological safety. And to me, like all the signs seem obvious, which is like people with more psychological safety, better retention, higher performance, less trouble, more ideas flow. All of it is positive. Yet you might be within a team where I have a leader that it's like, it always shuts down. It always causes drama. And I have some anxiety to even speak up. Are there tools or, or ideas on how to navigate that? Yeah. Baby steps would be the first thing that comes to mind, which is when I talked earlier about irrational fear being the kind of fear where you're not even consciously thinking about it most of the time, but you're, uh, you know, if I speak up, I will look bad. If I look bad, I might get demoted. If I get demoted, I'm going to lose money. If I lose money, I'm going to be hungry, right? There's a, a kind of a weird causal chain that happens in our heads that lead us to ultimately to that I'm going to die, right? There's a, there's a psychology of this, right? So not totally irrational, as I said, but it is not irrational to have observed, let's say, a toxic manager behave and belittle people or bully people, or even worse, actual physical or positional harassment of some kind. So I believe we should have a healthy fear of those people. And if you're in a good company of any kind, there are some places that you can go to report and get help. Hopefully most of you aren't in that situation and won't be, but in a more kind of, you know, maybe someone just isn't a very good manager yet. They aren't a manager that's particularly conducive to the knowledge era that we're in. So there you can take small risks, right? You start by, you know, you sort of wake up in the morning, you say, okay, today I'm going to go out of my way to offer an idea, or I'm going to be willing to ask a question when there's something I don't quite understand and just do it, sort of commit to yourself to do it and see what happens. You know, 99 times out of a hundred, it's not going to end badly right? It's going to end well. It's going to be appreciated and it's going to be, hey, good question. You know, I had that one too. And on we go. So someone just chatted in the growth mindset. This is absolutely related to growth mindset. I think of growth mindset and psychological safety as, as compatible partners in this creation of a learning organization. Right? So a growth mindset is one in which you realize I'm only as good as my latest learning. You know, it's not that I'm supposed to be perfect and know everything already, which is what we tacitly tell ourselves. It's that I'm supposed to be a work in progress. And every day that I learn something new, I'm better, right? I'm better, I'm stronger. And so that growth mindset leads you to be more willing to take these small interpersonal risks so as to avert bigger risks for the team or the organization. I know you share within your work kind of a toolkit for leaders that want to build more psychological safety. Yeah. You talk about like setting the stage and getting people. Could you walk us a bit more for those sure. who really want to go deep into this? Yeah. So it's a little bit of, you know, before, during, after, but that oversimplifies because it's really all during. Setting the stage to me has two components. One is always keep emphasizing purpose. I think that's where the fuel comes from. That's where the motivation comes from. Whether that purpose is something obviously meaningful, like taking care of patients or something that takes a little selling, like being the very best retailer in our region, but it's a purpose that you can revisit so as to get more motivation. That's part of stage setting. The other part of stage setting is what I call framing the work, which is just continually issuing that reminder 
that we do live in a time of great uncertainty and, if appropriate, interdependence. Why does that matter? Well, because those two conditions come together to mean that things will go wrong or the unexpected will happen. That's a given, right? Full stop. That's a given. The only question mark is, will we hear about it? Right? And the chances are that at least someone in the organization or on the team will notice something, will have an idea. But if they're holding back, we don't have access to it. So setting the stage is about reminding people that we're not in Henry Ford's plant anymore, that the world in which we are working is the kind of world where anyone's voice can be mission critical. And I think the best way to say this is that both of those things, purpose and framing the work, create a shared rationale for why it actually is logical that we'd want to hear from you. Because otherwise that rationale is missing. It's just absent. The default is it's absent, right? So now you kind of go, huh, I get it. All right. I think, you know, if I'm part of this team, I get it. They really do want to hear from me and there's a good reason why. Okay. Not enough, right? Step two is proactive solicitation of voice. And that's really a fancy way of saying ask questions, right? Ask each other questions, you know, ask the team leader questions and much more. It doesn't matter who you're asking, just you're asking people who might or might not have a clear line of sight on what it is we need to understand better to do great work. And then of course, you've set the stage, you've invited input. There's this one third thing that really matters, which is how do you respond? You know, let's say I ask you a question and you come forward with some a really, you know, some really bad news about the project. Like we're way behind schedule. And then let's say I blow up. Chances are you're going to think twice before you speak up honestly again next time. How I respond, you know, whether I'm your manager or your colleague matters. So all of us need to learn the art of responding productively. And I think a productive response, I use the word productive because I really do care about how the response in this moment shapes the future. You know, if I respond in this moment in a negative or belittling way, I'm altering the future and not in a good way. So a productive response is one, I think it has two simple ingredients. One, it's appreciative. Thanks for that clear line of sight. I mean, not fake talk, not happy talk, not, oh, wonderful that your project's behind. No, it's not wonderful at all, right? But I am grateful for the clear line of sight. Like I'm better off knowing, we're better off knowing. So thank you, right? Thank you, always. Thank you, such a powerful thing. And then forward-looking. So appreciative, forward-looking. Forward-looking is how can I help? or what next? And ultimately, when we have a little more time, not right this moment, but when we have a little more time, we might do an after action review to figure out oh, what went wrong and how we can do better next time. Always a good habit. I wanted to close off with the fact that we know we've just went through our 2020 and <laughs> a lot of things shifted. We talked about the uncertainty, the things failing and how desperately interdependent we are and all that got rattled. And I'd be curious to know, has there been anything within your teachings that you've modified, reinforced, or added once the pandemic hit, now that we were particularly more remote as well? well? There are a couple of things. One is that I think the pandemic made it easier to sell in a visceral way the reality of uncertainty, right? Before that, it was more of an abstract concept. Like we all knew, oh yeah, the world's changing faster than ever before, and there's uncertainty. but 
you know, it didn't usually hit you in the face that often, right? So um, now I think at least I can't remember in my lifetime where you could have captured me in, in February and I could be so totally wrong about what I told you was about to happen for the next three months in terms of, well, I'll be traveling here, I'll be doing that, my students and I will be acting in this way. No, overnight, seemingly overnight in about mid-March, all of that changed. Everything got canceled, everything got moved, everything got shifted to online. And, and so I think we get it now. At a, at a deep cellular level, we get that we live in a VUCA world, right? Volatile, uncertain, complex, ambiguous. So, so that's one way in which I think the last year has made us more aware of this uncertainty and therefore more aware of how, how dependent we are on each other, how dependent we are on voice, on ingenuity, problem solving. And the other aspect, which is a whole category in its own right, is how do we create psychologically safe teams in the virtual world? And it's different. It's not, if it was hard in the physical world, it's even harder in the virtual world. It's harder to read the body language. It's, it's harder sometimes to insert yourself into a conversation, although you can compensate for that challenge with things like the chat function. And that's been an interesting thing to kind of study and try to get my arms around, which is how can we use the features of these technologies to help compensate for some of the limitations of these technologies? I even think also about what opportunities does it offer? Because sometimes like, not that I would, well, this would be an extreme example, but if there would be physical abuse or physical fear within the proximity, you're now at home, you're in comfort. So there's probably right. some benefits that come from the virtual environment. That's and, true. Yeah. People went home to different homes, right? I mean, some homes were more conducive to um, comfort and others were more conducive to maybe other challenges and pressures mm. and even fears. Yeah, this is true. Well, I know for one is when people start understanding the concepts that you teach, at least we reduce that fear. And then we start building organizations that get to, to withstand these transformations and do so much more in the process as well. I just want to thank you so much for your time. This was such a pleasure. I want to make sure everybody tuning in here, grab a copy of the fearless organization, creating psychological safety in the workplace for learning, innovation, and growth. As we mentioned here is that a lot of these organizations through a concept of legacy, find themselves applying still the concepts that we expect people to be doing repetitive tasks. So these ideas of innovation and sharing your voice are usually not as welcome, but that is not the reality of today. As most people have transitioned to knowledge worker, as Amy has mentioned throughout this session here, we need ideas, we need innovation and growth is necessary. And it can't come just from one mind, it needs to be all the minds working together. So if you are an individual or a leader, asking questions is one of the powerful tools that you want to encourage. So you can be a leader within yourself or practice leadership yourself to encourage people to be more comfortable sharing ideas, even if it's not necessarily going to be hundred percent accepted, at least there's an acceptance of that sharing, which means that problems get to service faster, the performance going up, which is what the data has been showing. And then employees find themselves more engaged within the workplace as well. Definitely go deeper into this topic. We've had a chance to go through the model that you can go ahead and frame the work and emphasize the purpose. This is really where you get started. When you do that, then definitely go ahead and invite people to participate, invite them to be able to share and always, of course, listen and acknowledge the work and then work towards those solutions. Amy, this was a great prescriptive content. Thank you so much for sharing with the listeners. And I'm so excited for people to be able to work at building this more strategically within their organizations as well. Thanks again for tuning in. Hope you've enjoyed this podcast. And if you haven't signed up already, be sure to check out Mindvalley membership.
Besides getting unlimited access to our top-rated programs and trainers, you'll also join an incredible supportive community on our new Connections app. This is basically a global campus where you find like-minded friends, mentors, and accountability partners from around the world online or get together at local meetups. If you want education that connects you with kindred spirits and transforms you from the inside out, join the tribe at mindvalley.com forward slash superhuman today. My name is Jason Campbell, and this is Superhumans at Work, a Mind Valley podcast.